I think it takes a special temperament to be an episodic director. You still have to have a point of view and have a strong point of view. I am very clear on what the scene is supposed to accomplish, what the narrative is supposed to accomplish. And I'm not like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Right, Meaning right. like sometimes like cinematically, a, a showrunner may not know how to elevate the look, you know? So that's why a, a lot of people have been producing their right there and hoping that they would do that, you know? But I really, I really do credit the episodic directors that also honestly allow me to execute my vision and that they're being, they're really being a part of it and a big piece of it because at the end of the day, after they do the director's cut, you know, it's the producer's cut. And, you know, when you're in the writer's room for 20 weeks and then prior to that doing research, like you're going to know the characters better than, than everybody. Even if you're conceding on a point, like to be a passionate truth seeker, mm-hmm. like really passionately seeking the truth about this character and what they would do as opposed to seeking to be right. Like I'm not seeking to be right. Like I'm seeking to just get to the truth of it. And I always feel like there's like this tendency that you can have as a director, which is that you want the crew to love you. You want the actors to love you. I don't think that because I come in making a decision that I'm going to love the actors and I'm going to love the crew. Mm-hmm. And then we see where it goes, you know? Right, right. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Visit PeteChapman.com to get your official podcast merch. Hoodies, hats, jackets, mugs, and other swag. And learn more about your host. All right, all right. Welcome to episode 52 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. We are going to be welcoming Mr. Reggie Rock Bythewood. He is the EP writer director on Apple TV's Swagger, which I hope most of you have seen. Really great season, knocking it out the box. The way they shoot the basketball is amazing. The emotion that they get into with these young actors dealing with the realities of being black and trying to carve their way through a sports world that can be unforgiving is really poignant and and crafty and masterfully done. So that show is dope. Make sure you're watching it on Apple TV. But before we get in there, let's just talk about a few more of Mr. Reggie Rock Bythewood's credits. I'm going to go to the videotape from assistant producer Jada George's interview prep. He's educated at Marymount Manhattan College. He got his start on A Different World as a story editor. We'll get into that. But in the TV space, he's also known for New York Undercover, Players, 30 for 30, Gun Hill, Shots Fired, and of course, Swagger, which I've started this conversation with. In the film world, Reggie Rock Bythewood is known for 
Vampire's Kiss, where he was an actor, a church bystander. A man was getting the education in every part of the process before writing Get on the Bus. He served as a photographer on Love and Basketball, which was directed by his wife, Gina Prince Bythewood. Dancing in September, that's in 2000, director, producer, writer. Biker Boys, 2003, director, writer. What else do we have? Special thanks on The Old Guard and Beyond the Lights, which were directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, of course. And Notorious, 2009, he was also the writer of that film. He has won the Black Reel Award in 2002 for Best Screenplay and Best Director for Dancing in September, NAACP Image Award, 2015 Outstanding Director for Gun Hill, and Black Reel Awards 2015 or outstanding director and writing. So super accomplished gentleman. So happy he took the time to sit down and rap with me. My man, Matthew Cherry, tapped on his shoulder and connected the dots. So thank you, Mr. Cherry. But before we dive in, I figured in this season four, which is all directors, I'd maybe lead into this interview with the life of a director and what's been going on since we last hit you with episode 51 with Mr. Paris Barclay. So uh, what's going on? Meetings are kicking in again. I just got off a meeting this morning with a production company about two potential shows, one at Amazon, one at Peacock. Whenever this strike opens back up, should I you know, land those jobs? Tomorrow, another meeting with the HBO-related project. And I've been tapping the keys, working on some writing with my writing partner, trying to finish a heist script that I hope can get me back into the feature space. So as you can tell, it's a lot of meetings for future work, working on your own passion projects. I I started with features. I began in the film world. I've kind of, I won't say I've strayed, but the last six years have been hyper TV focused and I've never lost my desire to be in the feature space. And also, quite frankly, features are helpful in getting into the pilot director space as well in TV because you're designing a world and folks can understand that you have that muscle, which is one I have, but I haven't worked it in a while and I'm looking forward to uh, showing what I can do in that space. What else is going on? I need to get one of my latest episodes from the network so I can add it to my website. I think, you know, we often debate the value of a website or maybe actors, you know, it's like, should I have a headshot or not? I don't, I'm not an actor, so I can't really speak to it, but I just kind of feel like, you know, it's almost like if you don't have a headshot, it's, it's a missed opportunity because somebody's going to want that headshot one day. So, you know, for me, for a director, it's about the real and it's about the website. And for those interested, I urge you to check out PeteChapman.com. P-E-T-E-C-H-A-T-M-O-N.com. And it's just one example of a director's website. A pretty straightforward. I've got a nice little video clip at the top from the flight attendant. Then I have a bio. The bio, of course, is like, you know, home court advantage as far as I'm concerned. It's your opportunity to let people know about you in the way that you would want them to learn about you. So which projects you lean into first, you know, how you describe yourself, what things you leave out, because one person's bio 
is different from the next person's bio. And I know that from this show because there's what we put together on our end. And then as I interview folks, there are the things that they are more passionate about presenting first. And that's indicative of what they would want you to know if they could control the narrative. So your website is an opportunity to control the narrative. It's also an opportunity for the longer bio, which is what you might find, which is what you do find on my website. After that, I have a featured episode, which is the flight attendant. I got a link to view. And then I have a grid of 12 projects for people viewing to check out. I've got my reel. I've got upcoming shows, Dead Boy Detectives. And then I've got a smorgasbord of of things that I want to show you, the visitor. I've got the flight attendant, you, Minx, Love Life, Silicon Valley, Insecure, Mythic Quest, Unprisoned. And then I have my short film, Black Card, and I have my narrative podcast, Wednesday Morning. I just want people to be able to see the breadth of what I've been creating and be sure to let them know that I do create my own things, which is why the short film is there and the podcast is there. Then I've got quotes from folks that I've worked with, photos from on set, and then contact links for my reps and, of course, social media. So... That's what this director has going on as far as work and presentation. I'm updating that director's reel every every year or maybe every six months, depending upon the work. I'm trying to make sure it represents all the different types of things that I can do from comedy to drama to action to suspense or whatever it might be. And if I get anything new from an episode that is not present on the reel, I'll go in have the real recut and swap out something that might be a little redundant or not necessarily moving the chains forward. And I'll put in a sequence of whatever it is that I'm looking to add. So upcoming real cuts for those who are watching closely will be more, will lean more on action and, and stunts. So those are things that I'm adding. And I know just the episodes that I'm going to be pulling them from. So that's this week's life in a director. Right now, we're going to get it popping and dive into episode 52 with my man, Mr. Reggie Rock Bythewood. Enjoy. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. All right. So what I love to do with folks who have careers that are across different disciplines, I love to start with a question and see how well you remember the journey. So I'm going to ask you about this guy. Let's see if you can tell me, tell me a little more about him. He was arrested for committing arson in 1982. He tried working for a drug ring that caused Bob Morgan's death, put into a rehabilitation program in 1983. And the last known mention of him was at a wedding between Roy Bingham and Henrietta Morgan. Do you know who I'm talking about? That I do. Lots of blasts from the past. You know, I was 15 years old. I got cast in a soap opera called Another World. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you something. What was, so on one level, no, first of all, I didn't really, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it. I was going to high school performing arts. And it was going to mean that I was going to have to leave this high school and find another school that would allow me to, you know, do this show because high school performing arts didn't allow people to work professionally, huh. right? So, but then I got there and Pete, I'm working with Morgan Freeman. Wow. I'm working with Joe Morton. 
And you mentioned his character, Henrietta Morgan, that was played by an actress named Michelle Shea. She played my mother. Yeah. Michelle Shea was also one of the people who just really taught me how to be a professional. She's been on Broadway and yeah. done, you know, many things. And, and so you fast forward to now, Michelle Shea is the acting coach for <laughs> my young cast, helping them learn how to become professional. I love it. The like full circle, like circuitousness of, of this career and this industry is always rearing its head in interesting ways. So that that's 1982. <laughs> and you mentioned High School of the Performing Arts. Now, is that is that the renowned fame school? Yes. Yes. So, yes. so you grew up in New York. That's right. I grew up in the Bronx. All right. So what was what was that like going from the Bronx to 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 fame, as it were? Well, you know, first of all, it was like a 90 minute train ride every day, but I was going to performing arts. And, you know, at that time, performing arts had the number one attendance record in the city because we all wanted to be there. We all could not like wait to get in there and just practice our craft and really felt alive. Also, in the Bronx was it at that time. Yeah. I mean, the hip, you know, hip hop was just really coming of age. And, and and so any given day, you know, I might just be at home, might be jumping on a train to go to school, or I might be walking over to the park where everybody had the equipment out and there was a jam. Mm-hmm. So it was it was it was a it was an amazing, amazing time and amazing time to grow grow up in the Bronx at that time. Was the family supportive? Because I know like, you know, I was, I went to NYU in 95 and, you know, it was, even then it was like, you're going to film school? Like what? There's mm. a school for that? You know, like, yeah. how did your family understand what you were getting into and and and, and were they supportive of that? Yeah, I, I was not raised to not go for your dream. Mm. And it was really raised to prepare, go after it. The safety net, if at all, was education, but it was never like seek a fall, you know, a, a, a backup plan, go become a business major in case you don't make it as an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, that was never, it was, you know, get an education, but go after that dream. So it was very supportive. You know, sort of like from 15 on, I was in a single parent household. And so I didn't have a lot of communication with my father for, for quite some time from the age of 15 to like 30, you know. But I will tell you, he taught me some things growing up just at a very young age that always had an impact, which is never say can't. Right. Um, I mean, like we can get, I could get punished if I said the word can't, like that's how mm. serious it was. So the idea of not going after it was, was just never entered my mind, you know, and really fortunate that's the way I would graze. Um, so much so Pete, I remember sitting in high school performing arts one time there was a class and his teacher, it was about, I don't know, maybe 20 something of us in this class. And the teacher said, 
out of everybody that's in this class, there's probably only going to be one or two of you still doing this 20 years from now. One or two of you still pursuing this. And I just remember thinking, well, I don't know who the other one is because I know I'm one, you know? <laughs> right, um, right. You need and, that and so, though. Yeah, and, and it was just organic. But I just really did feel a calling. Just at that time, I thought it was about being an actor for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, a, a bit tangential, because I, I, I want to get into that a little bit more, but like, what was the thing, if there was one thing, do you remember what kind of sparked your interest in storytelling and in, and in this creative pursuit? I just think initially in performing arts, when we do a play, I felt like there were two choices. There was to do a play by a white author mm-hmm. or to do Raising in the Sun. And now, first of all, Lorraine Hansberry is my, fa- my favorite playwright. So no shade on her. Right. But you can't always play Walter Lee up in this bad boy, you know? So it was like, right. I've really then started to seek out on my own other Black playwrights. And somehow in seeking out other Black playwrights, I really, really became interested in the written word, like really started to feel the importance of that. Also, when I was on a soap opera for a while, you know, I'm, I'm this kid who's, who's on a soap opera and going to school and it was, it was really crazy. But I also felt like there was some good writing, but I didn't really feel like they understood the character of like a young right. teenage black man, you know? And so I really um, started to just ask questions about why things were written the way they were. And I really feel like that's where it started to happen. The other thing too, though, like when I was like the playwrights that were seeking out, you know, I would come across, it wasn't a part of the school curriculum, you know, like came across Amiri Baraka, mm-hmm. Rod Milner, and just like revolutionary Black playwrights that had something to say. And so I... I just really became enveloped in this idea that an artist's job is to change the world. I was so was so idealistic in high school. I really was like, I'm going to create art to change the world. And by the way, the biggest challenge as an artist and in this journey is to maintain that level of idealism. You right. Know? And I also feel like, you know, at at that time, right? Like, because let, let's see, that's probably somewhere like black exploitation is probably fizzling Yo. out, right? Yeah. And then there's that that gulf between black exploitation and arguably, you know, 1986, right? She's got to have it, where there wasn't much of a of a voice for black life. So I wonder if that compelled some of the idealism because there were things, it wasn't like our humanity wasn't being shown. It was like who we are isn't being shown. And we've got to tell you, we've got to bring you up to speed on what it is to be black before we can just show you what it is to have a a day in the normal life. You know, New York was just kind of hot back then in terms of like race relations. There was just a lot of things popping off in the city quite a few events with, with racial tension. And I don't know, I don't know what 
made my father do this because I'm sure like in the parenting handbook 101, you don't take your 12, 13 year old kids, some of those black exploitation movies that you're talking about. Yeah. But man, I mean, at like 11, 12, 13, I'm seeing movies with Pam Greer. I'm seeing Fred Williamson. I saw Black Caesar. I don't know how my father pulled it off, but I got to the premiere of this movie called Through the Hard Way. Yeah. Fred Williamson, Jim Brown, and Jim Kelly. And those things had such an impact on me. Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, it was Oscar caliber storytelling, but the brothers won't play in those movies. They, they were very revolutionary. So I know, even though that's those black exploitation era, I, I think those, you know, the, the part of narratives that I was seeing at a young age that basically stood up against racism, that stood up against Mm -hmm. the power structure, even in these Fred Williamson joints. Right. Definitely had an impact on me. Right. Now, how much of the, of the pivot to writing was, you know, was that more function of like, oh, there's more opportunities here or I can have more, or I can have more control in, in, in the image, you know, cause your, your next job after, after another world was a different world, right. As a, as a writer. Yeah. There's, so there's a little bit of a gap there. You know, I felt pretty good about, you know, things that were happening for me as an actor. Cause I'm, I'm a kid and I'm on TV and I'm doing commercials and, you know, I was making, you know, great money for me back then, you know, and then because I was so tapped into agents on auditioning, I didn't really want to go. I didn't take advantage of some college opportunities outside of the city. I wanted to stay in the city. So I went to a school called Marymount Manhattan College that allowed me to, you know, stay in New York. And I wrote my first play. So one of the things that happened is we had a Black History Month celebration. And there's a couple of sisters there that knew I wrote and they really pressed me, pushed me to write something for Black History Month. Mm. And so I wrote this monologue called The Harlem Cowboy. And it was just about this Black cowboy who wanted to go to South Africa, treat Nelson Mandela. So it was a bit of a comedy. But that, you know, I had something to say and it went over so well that I wrote it, I turned it into a play and then I wrote another play. And the thing about it is when I wrote a play, all the black students came out to support what I did and it became like a celebration. So that's really where I really got excited by it. Also at the same time, but I was still acting and I did a movie, acted in a movie called The Brother from Another Planet. And it starred Joe Morton. And so I got to, you know, reunited with him again, but it was also directed by an indie filmmaker named John Shales. And John Shales is, I don't know, he's just in so many movies and he he just goes indie, really great writer, director. And so I have this role in, in, in this movie, Brother from Another Planet, which actually was a very good film. And, but John talked to me about writing, talked to me about directing. And I was really inspired after working on that. And then shortly after that, I got cast 
in a so you know I'm, I'm graduated at this time. I get cast in a another soap opera, and at the same time I get cast in the soap opera, I get offered a a fellowship, the Disney Fellowship Writers Program. It's the first year of the program, so I get oh, offered wow. to either do this fellowship program that's going to pay thirty thousand a year. Versus the soap opera is probably going to pay like about 30000 a month or something. Hmm. But, but I went with the Disney Fellowship Program and I just decided I'm going to be a writer. So how did that, what was the path from the fellowship to your first writing job? Yeah, so I moved out to LA, was in the fellowship program. And while I was in the program, I don't know how, but like some of my scripts started to get around mm-hmm. and they got around to a black executive that worked at NBC at the time. And, 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 and by the way, another executive who worked at NBC at the time that it was, it was a woman named Felicia Henderson, who's gone on to become a writer and great showrunner. And we didn't know each other at that time, but I, I, I know that she sort of championed my voice they got over to the producers at A Different World, Susan Fails, and and I. So I was called in for a an interview to do a freelance episode, you know. And oh, is that how it worked? It was like come in, we'll talk to you, and then write one on on spec, kind of. Yeah, because back then it was expected that you would give like at least, so, you know, you'd have your, your writing staff, but you would give a freelance episode to somebody who was not on staff. Right. So I go in the interview with this and I was told to have a few ideas, but I was like, man, I need this. I got to pay these student loans. Let me go in. So I had something like 20, I had 20 something ideas. I love it. And when I got to like, maybe like my 13th idea, they were like, okay, okay, okay. We got it. We got it. And they told me, we're not going to give you, oh, you know, they, they, they made me wait. So I got a call and on the call, they said they talked and they decided they weren't going to give me the freelance episode. Instead, they're going to bring me on staff. And I was like, what the hell? You know, so it was just like, wow, it was amazing. Really was very excited for this opportunity. But to be real, also my money was so tight. Yeah. That I was like, man, I could pay the student loan. <laughs> and and that was my main goal. I like, stay on it, don't get fired, and stay on it long enough to pay off my student loans. Right. And and but that's how I got hired onto a different world. Survival is quite the motivator. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. So that was how long were you on? How how long were you writing on that show? Um, I came on for the last two seasons, I believe. And so was it three? No, I think it was two seasons. I think it was two seasons. And yeah, gee, man, I'm trying to think it was two or three. And, but yeah, and it was really great. You know, there's a couple of things that was really great about that. Number one is my first writing experience for, you know, sort of outside the plays I was writing. Then you go into this sort of environment. You don't, you're not really convinced if, like, am I really a writer? like in, in this sort of space. And also, I didn't necessarily know that I could pitch jokes, you know? Mm. And so it was, it was intimidating on a lot of levels, but I'm in the writer's room, Yvette Lee Bowser, 
was one of the writers in the room. Susan Fales Hill, who was the showrunner. Another one of the writers was Orlando Jones. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Orlando Jones was on the writing staff. And Gina, Gina Prince at that time was, was, was in the writer's room. And so we all just sort of like formed a bit of a family and really just found, found my way. And true to my nature, I always wanted to be the first one in the writer's room and I wanted to be the last one to leave. You know, right. I just felt like that was something, if nothing else, I could control that. But yeah, so that's how it, it, it all, all began for me. Now, would you describe that time? Because, you know, people talk about the kind of golden age of, of Black TV. Are we, is that that time in, in, in 93, 94, when like a lot of shows are starting to come out um, across the different networks? I mean, it started to feel, you started to feel a shift, but just to be very clear, you started to feel a shift with Black comedies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like when people talk about that, we don't often mention that there weren't like dramas. Right. Not yet. Right. So it was basically, you know, and so the WB and Fox, like, you know, Fox coming out with Martin, like that started to happen. I mean, well, first Prince of Bel Air hit while we were while I was still on a different world. And then after that, you know, then yeah, there's there started to be other shows popping up and there were a lot of black sitcoms that helped build these networks, like literally. You know, when Fox first started, it wasn't programming for seven days a week. Right. It was like, they had a lot of blackout days, you know, no pun intended. And, and, and Living Color was like their big hit, you know, and Girlfriends and Martin. I mean, yeah. um, not Girlfriends, excuse me, Living Single. And so it really, and, you know, and then WB, UPN, all these sort of networks really started doing all this black programming. Then when they got the programming, a lot of the black shows started to, 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 to go away. Bait and switch. Yeah. But that also opened the door. One of the, the early shows that Fox did was New York Undercover. And, and that was great for me. And I really wanted to move in that space because I always just felt more of a drama guy. And, you know, also really, you know, back then it was very hard it was very hard for black writers. I don't know if I should act like it's past tense, but I will for a second. It was very hard for black writers to get hired on predominantly white dramas. And, and all the dramas, by the way, particularly back then were predominantly white. There was no such thing right. as a black drama, you know? And so if a black drama, if a black dramatic pilot hit and the ratings went through the roof, that thing would die and then the conversation would permeate. Right. Black dramas don't work. And so right. it was like, you could never sort of turn that corner. And so New York Undercover was, was really great because it was, you know, had music, had style. I mean, the leads were, you know, a black cop and a Puerto Rican cop. Right. Yeah, that was, that was my show. And that was, that was groundbreaking, yeah. groundbreaking at the time, tuned in every week. So around that time, well, actually, let's let's live in that for a little for a little bit. Like I, today, there is a challenge still of going from comedy to drama, you know, and vice versa. What could you identify as like being helpful in making you in 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 helping you make that pivot? I mean, I think that 
Well, before that, I worked for the York and the Cover. I worked on a short-lived show that was really bad. <laughs> and it was, and it was, I guess it was a comedy. I don't know, man. It was supposed to be a comedy, but it was single camera. So it also was like this gray area of, is it a drama? Is it a comedy? So I was able to have that under my belt, but I also, I presented my plays. I submitted my plays as part of, you know, the reason to consider me for this. I also, I know I was like, I was from New York. I was wearing a Yankee cap. Right. I was like that dude. I had a really great interview at the time with Dick Wolf. Andre Harrell was a producer mm. on that show as well. And Andre knew, knew me from just sort of New York circles and his brother from the Bronx, you know, on a come up. So yeah. there was like great synergy for me. And, and I don't believe, you know, it's, it's a very interesting thing for also for me to be on the other side of it, to be interviewing people, you know, because, because I've interviewed people that are, you can't tell if they really want the gig or not. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying you got to like be desperate and begging, but you got to bring right. some passion. So right. I will just say to you to really answer your question, I was just passionate about it too. I, mean, I was very clear on not just the what, but the why. Like mm-hmm. why I should be in this writer's room. And, and I believed it. And, you know, ultimately they believed it. And, right. and that's, that's how, I, how, I, how I got on. That's a big, that's such a huge thing. And I, I, I have this for a later question, but I, I'll just throw it to you now because, you know, for a show like Swagger, Obviously, you're involved in in who's directing, right? Who's, right. who's writing? Like, what is it? And, and and obviously, you've just touched on it. You're looking for the passion. You're looking for someone who's direct about it. But like, what are? Let's maybe flip it. What are some of the things that happen in those meetings where you can kind of you're all you're almost immediately kind of ruling somebody out? Because I think for for the directors who listen, that might be a good thing to to hear, right? Because sometimes, you know, you may not be communicating your passion or you may have a particular temper, temperament that might need a little bit of a knob turned on it while you're in the room. Because it, just like auditions for actors, not every actor is great at auditions, not every, act, not every director is great at that meeting to get the episode. So having been on the other side of that, and having done it so well and the people that you've hired, like, what are you, what would you suggest people avoid? I think you can still be an introvert Mm -hmm. and express passion. So I don't think you have to like bounce off the walls and, and, you know, you know, tell a bunch of jokes if that's not organic to, you know, to who you are. But second season is like, well, second season is a very clear thing, right? Because I have first season already up on the platform. It's already up there. It's right there. So you come into a meeting, you haven't seen the show. It's like, all right, uh, all right, man. This 30 minute, 45, one hour window we have is just quickly become 15 minutes. Cause like, you're not even going to prepare. Like you're not even going to watch it. So there's that. Then 
when you're meeting various people, then it really becomes like who. So first of all, there's just passion on if you're interviewing for the gig, why not watch all 10? Now, maybe you got the call two days ago. You haven't watched it. So might just watch one or two or three. You know, OK, cool. You know, but just being prepared, like don't just show up, just prepare. And it's also fun to ask questions, but the, is there any alignment you have cinematically or performance-wise or story-wise? Like, what are you connecting to? Because if it's just like, hey, I don't need another credit, then it's, you know, then I'm not inspired to, to want to make it work. So I'll tell you, so one of the directors I hired, her name is Katina Medina Mora. And she did the finale, no? Yeah, she did. She did seven and eight. She did the last two. Right. Now, Katina's work is good. And like she did sitcom, but she did a couple of it. Like tonally, it was hard to sort of envision how she might be able to do swagger. Right. And then she showed me in the film that she had done, you know, a while back. And it was really, really good. Right. And in our interview, she was just so passionate, so connected. And I believe that it wasn't an act. Like you could just tell how dialed in she was. Right. And I went back to look at her independent film, like just hoping that it was good because yeah. I just needed an excuse to pull the trigger. And I needed, but I needed something else because totally I, I didn't know. And she hadn't done that type of action before. She hadn't done basketball. She didn't basketball. She didn't even know, she didn't really fully understand the game of basketball. But she understood character. She understood performance. And she understood how to connect with the material and like everything that she she said in the meeting just really showed a lot of passion. So, so that's why I hired her. You know, I would say like Matthew Cherry, he's not bouncing off the walls and he's kind of just chill and he's kicking it, but, you know, just really made it clear that he was passionate about it. And, and you know, the conversation was specific like specificity in the conversation was, was key. So it's just very hard, man, to hire people when you just feel like they could take it or leave it. Yeah. Because what we do is already so hard. It's so hard when it's clicking. Right. You know, that number one, I don't want to work with people who are assholes, you know? And number two, I, I don't want to work with people that aren't passionate because then I just feel like you're just phoning it in. And, you know, ultimately, I, I want you to come in and really look to elevate the material. So, yeah. on, on In these particular situations, are you having to advocate to the studio and network or are you kind of able to be the last line of defense on these selections? Yeah, I didn't get any pushback, actually, which is great. I think sometimes if somebody hasn't done TV before, like, I think when Nigel Mumin, who also directed, you know, 206, like one of our bigger ones this season, I don't think Nigel had done TV before she did Swagger and she's a one a month. And if she had, she hadn't done a lot, you know? Yeah, maybe I and think she might have done Queen Sugar maybe at that time. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if Queen Sugar came first. I don't think, I, I, I want to say I think we were first because she was also in my writer's room, by the way. Gotcha. But the point is she hadn't really done something that would demonstrate she could do swagger. And so, you know, sometimes you have to advocate when there's like not a lot of TV experience. I will tell you years ago, 
Gina and I had a show called Shots Fired. And sometimes like executives just aren't as aware as they should be. And we wanted Casey Lemons to do one. And she hadn't had TV experience. But it was like it was Casey Lemons. Right. And, right. It, and it became a bit of a battle. And, you know, we were able to fortunately win that battle. And she went on and did a really great job. So sometimes you could run up against that. Fortunately for me, I, 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 I didn't have those challenges and just yeah. really just got like great, passionate people. And probably the bigger challenge is that you sometimes come across really like a lot of good choices and having to figure out who's going to get it versus who's not, I find pretty difficult. Right, right. And then trying to put them on the right episode or right block of episodes that, that yeah. suit their skills and passions and yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a tough job you're, you're picking like you know four babysitters at one time you know right for the most right. crucial years of your of your child's life right um, so you could imagine like how important it is to be passionate yeah hi i'm paris barkley director writer producer and you're listening to let's shoot with pete chapman Transitions, A Director's Journey and Motivational Handbook is Pete Chapman's book from Michael Weezy Productions. The reviews are in. Greg Berlanti says, There's a reason why everyone who works with Pete falls in love with his work. The lessons he imparts here are invaluable. Do yourself a favor and read it cover to cover. From Sarah Gamble, Pete's sharing gold nuggets that will spare you a ton of wasted time and help you channel your drive, talent, and ambition in the most productive way. And from Jesse Williams, this business has everything to do with preparation and expectations. Transitions grounds lessons in reality while empowering our artistry to run free. Not an easy balance to execute. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is available on Amazon and anywhere else you get your books. Don't forget about your mom and pop shops, people. I'd love to go from getting from, from the writing, from the writer's room to the director's chair. What was that journey like for you? Well, it's interesting because I directed my plays. Mm-hmm. And I really loved working with actors. And I didn't go to film school, I went to theater school. So I was a theater major. So didn't really have a handle on a lot of the technical aspects. But I mean, New York on the cover on some level was film school. And it was great to learn how to produce. But, you know, it's again, one of the things that, that we talk about during a strike is writers being able to be on set. I was on set every time I wrote something. And sometimes when I didn't write something, they'd send me to New York and I would be on set. So just like, like you just kind of just doing, like doing it as a producer, doing it as a writer, agreeing with choices that are made directorially, not agreeing. And then I spent so much time in the editing room on some level, New York Undercover was another film school for me. Mm-hmm. And I was encouraged quite a bit to direct, you know, we, we always have like these montages and, you know, that's how this show would open up. Yeah. And I was always encouraged to direct one of the montages, but honestly, I was writing so much. I just felt like it was too much pressure to try to, you know, 
put all of it on. And, but, but I'd always regretted not directing some of that. And, and then I just got to a point, maybe it was sometime, maybe it was sometime after doing Get on the Bus, that it was like really, it's really great as a writer to hear your words performed and, and, you know, you, we don't write to just have it read. We have it right. We, we write to have it produced. So really blessed. But I also just started feeling like, man, like even if I liked the choices another director made, it just started to feel like I, it's somebody else's vision, but it needs to be my vision. I need to protect my vision. Right. And so then I, I wrote a play, uh, excuse me, wrote a screenplay called Dancing in September and raised some money. Most of the money I raised was among other black TV writers and producers and managed to raise a million dollars and shot my first film and wow. um, learned a lot. But that's that's what got me in that chair and really, and you know, I've, I continue to go back and forth between writing, directing, and, and just writing. But like I, protecting my vision was really the impetus to want to direct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how many investors you had on 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 dancing? It's a lot. Yeah, mm, I'm gonna say maybe somewhere in the area of ten. Okay. Yeah. And do you feel? I wonder if you feel because I, I I raised about half of that for a feature. I had mm-hmm. thirty five. <laughs> well, I had thirty five mm-hmm. investors, but I, I was gonna ask you if if looking back, do you feel it was like an early version of of crowdfunding or did you know everybody kind of, did you have a relationship with everybody? No, it was, it was, it was a bit of both, you know, and, and I used, I used get on a bus as a template because get on a bus actually was an independent film as well. We raised money around among 16 black men. Right. And so there was a, a sort of formula in place of, you know, raise money, first money in, they recoup their investment. And, and so I was able to present that to some, some of them might have been some investors from Yen on a Bus. And then, you know, I hit up some, some people I knew, I think, actually, if I remember correctly, I didn't raise the full one million at first. I raised, maybe it was like seven or, or whatever I thought was enough. Then then I then I got in post and I was like, I need some more money. I gotta do some more things. Right. And but at least I was able to but I was able to show people it's what all, I had. Always easier to get those finishing yeah. funds when you're yeah, like, come yeah. come take a look at this cut. Right. And then that's what happened, you know. And that's so I was able to finish it and, and put it out to some festivals and stuff. And and you know, such a blessing to have it acquired and you know, I think like we we spent a million and we we got back like two and a quarter. So I was like, man, this is not bad. But it's also hard doing an indie joint and getting distribution. It wasn't like I had various viable options. It was like one option that maybe I'd be able to recoup, and another one where HBO was like, hey, we'll buy it. Right. Good night. There you go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's. The journey is interesting. And, and what you said at the beginning of like not being able to say I can't, you know, is reflected in in these pivots in discipline and craft that you've employed to get to where you want to go. 
in the years after that, were you, was there a new distinction between like, okay, this one I'm comfortable writing, being the writer, I don't really want to direct it. This thing I have to direct. How did those distinctions happen on the job, on the projects that came after? Because there are some that you wrote and then there are some that you directed. And I wonder. Yeah, that's really an interesting question that you, you asked because I'm just putting this together as you asked this question. Like that has really helped me in being a showrunner who mm. directs some of it, but doesn't direct all of it. Well, first of all, you know, I would get hired to write some screenplays. And a lot of the things I was hired to write, there was a director attached. And sometimes I was excited to work with the director. You know, they, they were kind of down the road for a bit on Notorious. They asked me to come in and work on a script. And George Tillman was the director. And I was like, yeah, that'd be cool to rock with George. You know, so okay. sometimes it's like that. But I didn't want to just direct. I just wanted to direct some specific projects, you know. And so then I wrote some stuff that is just now, you know, prior to the strike, getting a level of attention that I had always wanted to get 15 years ago. So, yeah, I was not really looking to direct, but just direct my own material that I was creating. And when we did Shots Fired, Gina did the pilot and I did the finale. Mm -hmm. And that was good. And coming off to Swagger, I was able to use some of the skills that you're asking me about, which is sometimes as a writer, I'm not the director, but it's important for the director to have a vision. But it's also important for that vision to align with my vision. And on a film, the director obviously is king or queen, you know, totally different on a TV show, you know. So, but also I want, the directors to bring what they bring to have their own, you know, views and lean to their strengths. And so I've actually found myself enjoying that collaboration. Mm -hmm. Like I've worked with directors where I've enjoyed the collaboration. I felt like I've learned and at times feel like they've learned from me. And so now, like even when we did Shots Fired, you know, Malcolm Lee came to direct a very dramatic one that I wrote. And it was fun to have Malcolm like do something so dramatic. And, right. but I had a really good time, you know, working with him. So I really became fond of, and, and by the way, going back to Shots Fired, like Jonathan Demi uh, was one of our directors. And that's a whole other, by the way, I'll just say in terms of like passion, that dude was in his 70s when he came in and, and, he had like more passion in his pinky than the rest of us all had combined, like just like really caring, really caring about having something to say, really caring about craft, really right. caring about what you're putting out into the world, you know? So I had some collaborations that were very inspiring. So, you know, now running a show, It's challenging because I could sort of see, I could I have a strong opinion of like what it is. Right. But I also want a director to have, you know, I, I want them to surprise me. And it's just a really great 
evolution in, in terms of me being able to do both writer out front as a director, writer sitting next to the director. But it does help that ultimately everyone is looking to achieve my vision. Right. You know, definitely makes it more gratifying. Right. Yeah. It's such a, you know, as a guy who, who I've, I've been a PD on a show, I've hopped around on, on a lot of different shows and it's always like first day of school, you know, like when you show up and you're trying to figure out, well, what's the, what are they looking for here and where can I add value, you know, mm. that is in the sandbox of what this, you know, game is. And that, mm. that's, that's the, that's the big, you know, rinse, repeat challenge of, of, of TV, like finding a way also to not turn off your passion and enthusiasm when perhaps like your idea, like I might have an idea and you might be like, I, I love that, but it's not what it's not right for this moment. Mm -hmm. You know, I I've seen as a PD, I've seen directors take that as like you stomped on their, on their, you know, fire you know, and then I've seen them understand that like, oh, okay, I was maybe interpreting this moment in a way that's not going to flesh out with what the whole character arc or season is doing. And it's not personal. It's just like not what works. It really does take a very special temperament to be that person. I think it takes a special temperament to be an episodic director. But I've seen like the, the ones that are, I feel like have worked well are the ones that you still have to have a point of view. You have a strong point of view, yeah. but also kind of be open, you know? And I, I'd like to think it's a, a good situation if you're working with me because I, I'm very clear on what the scene's supposed to accomplish, what the narrative's supposed to accomplish. And I'm not like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Right, Meaning right. like sometimes like cinematically, you know, sometimes a, a showrunner may not know how to elevate the look, you know? So that's why a lot of people have been producing that right there and I'm hoping that they would do that, you know? But I really... I really do credit the episodic directors that also honestly allow me to execute my vision and that they're being, they're really being a part of it and a big piece of it because at the end of the day, after they do the director's cut, you know, it's the producer's cut. And, you know, when you're in the writer's room for 20 weeks and then prior to that doing research, like you're going to know the characters better than than everybody and unless you're a director that's been in the the writer's room with everyone on some producing directors do that but that's very rare to get that budgeted so yeah i don't know man I, I know i've said it a couple of times but i just go back to to this even if you're conceding on a point like to be a passionate truth seeker mm -hmm like really passionately seeking the truth about this character and what they would do as opposed to seeking to be right. Like I'm not seeking to be right. Like I'm seeking to just get to the truth of it. And 
always feel like there's like this tendency that you can have as a director, which is that you want the crew to love you. You want the actors to love you. I don't think that because I come in making decisions that I'm going to love the actors and I'm going to love the crew. Mm-hmm. And then we see where it goes, you know? Right, right, right. Perspective shift. Yeah. It's interesting. So let's, let's talk about the show. I know, you know, for the, everybody should have seen the entirety of season one and season two, which is great. And, you know, you mentioned like not needing necessarily a, a PD on, on this show because you've got specific ideas on how to elevate the look, which... Can I, I say that? Well, yeah. I mean, you know what it is? It's like, well, season one, not producing director. Season two, I felt... Well, let me, let me just, just, to, just to, I just want to clarify this for you. So season one, I'm the producing director, but that's when the pandemic first hit and none of us really had much awareness of COVID. Right. And I didn't feel that it was right for people potentially putting their life on the line and I'd be back chilling in my spot in LA. I was like, if they're going to be out there, I got to be out there. I'm going to be on set with them. That's just how I felt as a showrunner, as a leader. So what I found is like I was on set a lot, but I wasn't given the opportunity to have a lot of writers on set. So did you have any or did you just have? I was like, able to get like one, one and, or two for like a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. And I fought to get them on set, but it was a fight, but I got them extended for a little while, but I was, it was just like so much of it was all on me. So when season two came about, I feel like on my style of show running, I'm going to be there. I think that felt right to me. But what didn't feel right is that I didn't have writers being able to come on set. So I felt I will be the showrunner slash producing director because I want you to take that money so that writers can be on set. And that's kind of like how I was doing. And I feel very passionate about writers being on set. I feel like that. I think it's just crucial. And it's just good. It's good for actors. It's good for everybody. It's good for the director, you know? Yeah. So that's really what it came about is I felt it wasn't so much like, oh, I don't need a producing director. I just felt like I need my writers on this bad boy. And, you know, it's, it's obviously one of the things people are striking about, but, but that was my way of approaching it is, yeah, I feel like I could communicate directly to directors. Right. I'd have you kind of piggybacking on what you're saying and, mm-hmm. and, and kind of, talking about the strike a little bit, the reason you can do that is because you've come up through all those ranks that the writers you're trying to preserve have not, right? So you've seen all the things that like, like you're able to, I don't know if it was a cost savings or not to, to the network, but arguably you're able to present this cost saving because you've got the experience and for them to you know, eliminate this idea of writers on set and think that in five, 10, 15 years, the shows are going to be as good as they can be. It's an equation that doesn't add up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I started my career that way, you know, and, yeah. and a different world was different because it was shot in LA and it was, you know, three camera and shot in front of a live audience. But, you know, I was, I was on set. Like it just felt, organic. So yeah, I would have had an executive producer, writer who was there every time I couldn't be there. And it was just felt great. And then I was able throughout the season 
was able to get, but various times, three other writers to be on That's set. Great. That's yeah. great. Uh, I would have liked more, but that was, it was definitely crucial. So what's like, in talking about the show, I, I figured I'd ask you like, what's something about the show that you would love to share that perhaps you haven't shared? You know what I mean? Like it could be a creative thing. It could be a technical thing, but I, I just feel like, you know, I remember when in my, in my documentary days, <laughs> I would always ask, you know, people, the last question would be, is there anything I, I haven't asked you that you want to share? And I swear to you, 90% of the interview would come from that because they like, they go through their mind and really try and like make sure they're touching on what, what they feel is most important. So I don't know if it's, if it does that, but I, I'd, I'd love to hear what, what that might be for you in relation to the show. Mm -hmm. I would say that it, it, a part of it is how I've started to look at life in the last three, four years that align with me doing the show, like all coming at the same time, right? So, you know, all right, I'm solo. Let me just set the stage for you. We're, we're, we're in season one. You know exactly where the show is going. Pandemic hits. What the hell? Right. How can we get back on? How fast can we get back together so I can continue the story as it is? And then it's like, dude, you've been talking a lot about surrender mm. and what that means. And, and this is a perfect opportunity like to surrender. And like, can't, do I have the faith and belief that God, universe, ancestors, whoever got my back, that if I do, why would, why, why would I be punished with this, right? Like, so then you're like, well, wait, you're not. Like, this is an opportunity. So there's a pandemic. So surrender to it. You say you want to do a show that's not just about sports, but also holds a mirror up to society. Hold a mirror up to society. And by embracing the pandemic, by embracing all the sort of things that happened in 2020, from Ahmad to Rihanna to George Floyd, like by embracing that, I put it in the storytelling and it elevated the, the right. show, right? So that's, that was like the first sort of example of surrender. I can give you a few others, but I'll just give you this one in particular. So one of the more powerful hours of the show is in season two, 205. And they play a basketball game at a detention center. And... Then there's like a lot of, and, 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 you know, you go after this, you really understand that you have a cause bigger than yourself. You really understand that this can be really powerful and meaningful. And so 
Why, why would God be against you? So you're going out there and, hey, Reg, we got some bad dudes. It's going to rain. Okay, cool. All right. All right, director, stay level-headed. What can we do about the schedule moving? We, we, we can't move anything around because this is the only day that we have this location. So if we go away, you're never going to come back to this prison location, which was hours away from the city. Okay. And then I'm out of ways of resisting it. So what do you do if you believe the universe has your back? What do you do if you believe that your job is to surrender? What do you do with that? So I got it and like this overwhelming level of confidence hit me because I understood that I'm supposed to surrender to this. It's right to rain into the script. Right. And we made it a story point. It wasn't like right. it just rained, like it became a major, the rain became a major story point in the script. And if it had not happened, it still would have been good. Still would have been really, but it was elevated. Right. And so I really started to <clears throat> really just creatively understand that I don't always have to like fight against the tide to like use the tide with me and, and, and surrender into that. And there's just several examples like that, that I can tell you that has made the storytelling better. And I'd say this approach is relatively new to me. Yeah. You know, three, four years and it's like, and I'm still learning it. And, but, but that's been really great and exciting. And to understand, I don't need the net. I'm giving it a tightrope. It's good, you know, and we can do this. So that idea of surrender as a filmmaker, sometimes it's like, we can sort of take that outside of our, I'm just surrendering as like a human being or as a dad or as a husband or what. But as a filmmaker, it's been really amazing to do that, particularly yeah. when I've seen it elevate the material. And it feels, it feels so contrary to the idea of being a filmmaker, right? You're supposed to, yeah. you know, push the mountain up, push the rock up the mountain, <laughs> right. you know, rain or shine, it's going to be, it's going to be shine and just make it work. And that's, that's an interesting thing to embrace knowing that you've got the skill set to the, and the toolkit to make it work to your advantage. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny too, because, you know, that day we called every, all the departments together and I was so committed to this idea and I, and I knew it was going to be great because yeah. I saw it and I just told everybody's what we're going to do. And everybody was energized, man. And that and then like the rain happened and we had this kid running around in the rain celebrating the rain and we just hustled so hard to get to get it and by the end of the day it was just exhilarating it was one of our best days of production right. because we surrendered and, and believed in this thing i have a this is a question that I'm, I'm very curious about how much of the performances are if any improv because in watching season two and in, in particular, like in the finale with the speeches, I was like, man, this, I feel like I'm almost, I feel like I'm watching a documentary. Mm. 
You know what I mean? Like, and it, and I just was wondering as a, as a filmmaker myself, I was like, man, are they, are they just doing this? You know what I mean? Like, are they just doing what's coming to them because they've, they've occupied these characters with, with, with such depth that they're just doing what the natural response would be. Yeah, no, no, it was, all, it was scripted, you know, maybe some of the call outs and ad libs when another kid would walk up to the podium. It was, you know, you know, some, some ad libbing there, but, but the actual speeches themselves were scripted. We very specifically looked to shoot the show documentary style, if you will. Most of it is handheld. And the idea is to make you feel like you're there with them, that you're not a spectator, but you're part of the action. The other thing that was just really amazing about these speeches, you know, if you go from, you know, you know, just another quick surrender, by the way, is that it took a minute to get the pickup from season one to season two. So during that time, what did these kids decide to do? They decided to keep the band <laughs> growing, you know? So that's why right. I was like, yo, I don't want to come back and try to pretend that they're 10th graders. They're right. legitimately 18 years old. Boom, senior year. Right. I just surrendered to that. I felt it made it better. But the thing that was really amazing is a lot of times when young men get older, they become more guarded. Mm. For whatever reason, these young men got older and they had more vulnerability that they could express and, and bring to their performance. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was so satisfied. Interesting. That's really interesting. And I, and I, I wonder to your earlier uh, comment, I wonder how much the pandemic influenced that mm. growth of vulnerability because, you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, I, you asked me when something happened and now I, I can't tell you because it could have been last year or it could have been 2019 and they're, and they're both in like the same month to me, but to, you know, I'm 46. Right. So like mm. it, to be 15 and going through that separation, that isolation, I, I, I wonder if it, made the yearning for connection even, you know, even stronger. I don't know. I think so because everyone had been separated, but also uh, just even in particular doing the finale, you know, we shot that scene. If it wasn't the last day of production, it was like one of the last days of production. And so I think people are already sort of feeling that they are about to be separated again. You know, so they were able to call that up. I mean, just also the other just thing is just really important is just really, you know, like what type of environment you want to create, particularly with young young people. And as I said, like what we do is just too hard to deal with assholes, man. You know, so it's like you really want to create a safe space, but also creating safe space brings out the best. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. And it's evident. It's yeah. funny too. I, I'm from South Orange. I, I, I went, I grew up there K through 12, man. So I... I knew, you know, Isaiah's aunt, she was two years ahead of me, Lauren Hill at mm. high school. Mm -hmm. And then right. his dad was a year ahead of my sister, Melanie. So it, it's just crazy. Like watching mm -hmm. this whole thing wow. happen, it's super dope, man. Um, yeah. Well, I, I like to call this the the rounding third part of the, part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. I'd love to ask folks like, you know, from your estimation, from your journey, what are three character traits that you find are helpful or, or required to succeed in, in this industry? Okay. I'll just preface my answer with this, that I don't know if this is going to work for everybody. It works for me and it's crucial. 
number one, have a cause bigger than yourself. We say it a lot in Swagger, but it is really kind of understanding the why, what you're doing, like not just the what, but the why. Mm-hmm. And like tapping into that, tapping into that. And so that when you go into a room, it's not just you lobbying for this project, but it's, it's you standing on the shoulders of ancestors or family or, or whatever, however you perceive it and understanding that you have a cause and just bringing that into the room with you. So therefore, introvert or extrovert, bringing that with you already gives you your passion. So, you know, I could simply say passion, but I want to give you a little bit more detail and I would extend it to say cause bigger than self. Number two, preparation, just really being as prepared as possible. With son who plays baseball, is a baseball player at UCLA. And, you know, right now he's training in his off season because you got to prepare because you never know what's coming at you. So like the more prepared you are, the more apt you are to say, hey, let's use the rain. Or let's, you know, because your skill set is going to be tighter. And I think also communication. Having the ability to communicate. So it's not just enough to have the cause bigger than yourself or your passion. It's not just enough to have preparation. It's now, you know, how do you have the ability to communicate your vision? And that's just another thing. I don't know everybody communicates in their own way, but it's obviously, it's a very key component to getting a job. It's a key component to getting a performance. It's something that really, you know, needs to continue to be honed and, and mastered, which is your ability to communicate. I love it, man. So a cause bigger than yourself, preparation and communication. Yeah. I dig it. Is there anything you want to add that I haven't maybe touched on? Um, want, we want a, a, another emerging artist to be able to chew on as they embark upon their path or continue on their journey? I think just the other is just have fun, man. Like, it's just like, it's, it's, it's such a, it's, it's great. And, you know, it can be stressful. Try to surround yourself with the right people. You know, I'm fortunate enough to be surrounded with some people that just have my back, make me laugh. And, and to just, man, just like, enjoy this journey, you know, go after it, go after it, but, but enjoy it. I appreciate you. Well, I, I, I got to thank Matthew Cherry for linking us up. Yeah. And yeah. as I, as I said, brother, like you're, you're an aspiration and inspiration in what you've been doing and, you know, navigating a, a, an industry full of pot, potholes and pitfalls like, with great success and, and always having something to say and executing it. So you know, I appreciate you taking a little time out of your day to join us here, man. No, well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. And, and, and what do you have to say for the folks, man? Because maybe I could take something with me as well. Oh, man. I mean, gosh, I always wonder when I because, you know, 50 plus episodes, I, I hope I'm not repeating myself for those who have listened to that many. But, you know, look, I mean, you got to never you have to always be learning. You know, I, yeah. one of the main reasons that 
you know, this podcast started in, I started it in June of 2020, sorry, uh, during the the quarantine, because I was like, man, I'm just at home and I really, Mm -hmm. I miss the community, but also there's folks that I don't really talk to, you know, like I I joke, I got, I got friends that I've had on the podcast and I was like, yo, I never knew that about you. (laughs) You know what (laughs) I mean? Like you just like, sometimes you just don't really go there. Right. And so, you know, just to always be learning and to, in the process of the learning, finding your voice. And then the sooner you get to your voice, rinse, repeat, and just keep telling stories from that unique perspective and, and something, something will catch, but during the time that you're waiting for it to catch, I think you'll be happy because you'll be trying to say, you will be saying what, what drives you most. Um, So, you know, I try and take my own advice with this strike. I've been working on a future, you know, that that has been languishing. Um, And yes, looking forward to fair deals for all and getting back to like your last point to what is really fun. I mean, it takes a lot of time out your day a lot of time out of your life away from family, but it's fun. And yeah, keeping that, keeping that North star of passion right. and having something to say and, and having fun with it. Yeah. 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 Got always be learning. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. As we were saying in the Bronx, knowledge reigns supreme. Over you nearly know. everyone. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I don't know who the, who the other folks aren't, who, who the, who the nearly are, but somebody's not listening. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you, sir. Okay, brother. Thanks for having me, man. All right. All right. Take care. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on IG via at Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via let's shoot with pete chapman at gmail.com and just in case you need to know how to spell it that's pete with the last name c-h-a-t-m-o-n let's shoot with pete chapman is produced and edited by the multi-talented cut creator tristan nash assistant produced by the young mogul jada george and features the wonderfully gifted kelly mccreary as our announcer It's written by yours truly, but I mostly come up with these questions on the fly, which you've probably noticed. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is sponsored by Sweat Equity, so go ahead and get your podcast swag via PeteChapman.com and leave a review on iTunes if so inclined. That shit matters. All right, y'all. That was episode 52 with Mr. Reggie Rock Bythewood. Thanks for listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Next week, tune in as we welcome Mr. Garrett G. Mac McNamara, a big wave surfer, a director of his own right, and a cool ass dude to talk to. In the meantime, stay safe, spread love, and keep creating.